Welcome to Renegade Inc, the show that allows us to think differently. For millennia, we've been told that Jesus Christ died for our sins. But what if, as a social reformer, Jesus was killed because he was talking about reforming the economics of his day? So much focus on sin hasn't left much room for theologians to talk about Jesus' thoughts on economic justice. Someone who has thought about the economics of ancient societies is Professor Michael Hudson. He's written a book called Forgive Them Their Debts, in which he argues that it was debt that Jesus really wanted to do away with. In fact, writing off debt has been a cornerstone of economic reform for millennia. So we went to New York to hear from Michael about how ancient debt principles have never been more relevant today. Michael, always a pleasure sitting here in New York with you in your uh, hometown, if well. you like. <laughs> we always research you, obviously, and one of the things that we found out more recently is something entirely unique that viewers won't know, which is you're one of the first ever writers on Saturday Night Live. Is this true? Yes. I wrote the LaRouche Evening Theatre uh, with Al Franken uh, and some of the others. They wanted to do a parody of Lyndon LaRouche's view of the world. And uh, they were worried that somebody was going to sue them, so they uh, had me go through uh, the EIR, their nutty publication. They did it on the night that Oprah Winfrey was hosting Saturday Night Live. They did it as the last uh, skit, and I think Al Franken uh, played uh, Henry Kissinger acting as a mule uh, carrying dope for the Queen of England. LaRouche sued, as we expected, the uh, NBC, I think for a million dollars. The jury ended up giving an award of two million dollars to NBC for the harassment of LaRouche. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, because Brilliant. everything they did, we took directly from uh, the EIR, and so uh, that was my uh, bit of comedy. Fantastic. Right so, superstar economist and also brilliant comedy writer. Uh-huh. So, um, a different bit of writing is uh, your uh, latest book. Not many jokes in uh, your new book, which is uh, Forgive Them Their Debts. Um, why did you write it, uh, and what's the sort of central thesis? Well, I went to a meeting for the United Nations in Mexico City in 1979 on uh, third world north-south debt. I was an advisor to UNITAR, the United Nations Institute for Training and Research that was following uh, third world uh, debt. And my, uh, I'd learned already on Wall Street at Chase Manhattan Bank that the third world, most uh, Latin American countries, mm-hmm. African countries, were absolutely at their limit. They couldn't pay any more debts. And I realized uh, that the debts had to be canceled. Uh, I uh, gave a speech there, and there was uh, literally a riot after it. Uh, uh, there was a man who I think was a CIA uh, plant who uh, was a reporter uh, and who uh, said after I gave my speech that I'd said that the third world would have to work hard to repay the debts. So I stood up and demanded apology from the president of Mexico for uh, permitting a CIA American uh, operative to misrepresent and falsify what I was saying. I pulled out the uh, American delegation. I pulled out the Canadian delegation. We all walked out and uh, didn't know what was going to happen, but I realized that the uh, people had difficulty understanding the idea that most debts couldn't be paid, and that that was natural, that every economy tends to get out of balance and develop a larger amount of debt that can be paid. And the question is, 
what happened then? So I decided, uh, since I was advocating by that time a debt cancellation for third world countries, that I was going to write a history of debt cancellations. And it took me about a year to go all the way back in time to Greece and Rome, uh, Solon's uh, debt cancellations, founding the uh, Athenian democracy, the Spartans debt cancellation, the seventh uh, century Greek tyrants uh, debt cancellation. I realized that there was hints of something in Babylonia and Sumer. People would, would refer to the uh, Jubilee law of uh, Leviticus 25 in the center of Mosaic law, and Jewish law of reflecting Babylonian law. And there was no economic history of the ancient Near East, no economic history of Sumer and Babylonia. The popular histories were all about uh, Sumerian uh, literature, writing, how modern they were. And uh, I didn't read cuneiform, but uh, I it wouldn't have helped if I did, because uh, the translations of the Sumerian and the Babylonian debt cancellations were different in every single language. Uh, the American, Samuel Kramer, said that when Urukagina canceled uh, the Sumerian debts in uh, around 2200 mm -hmm. uh, BC, this was a tax reduction, and he wrote a letter to the New York Times when Ronald Reagan was elected, saying, Ronald Reagan, do what Urukadina uh, did and cancel the debts for the rich people, obviously. <laughs> and uh, this was exactly the opposite. Yeah. Uh, well, I then began to collect all the debt cancellations I could find from Sumer, Babylonia. I uh, mentioned it to a friend of mine at the Peabody Museum. Uh, I was almost immediately uh, made a research uh, associate in Babylonian archaeology in 1984 at the Peabody Museum at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And uh, we decided to create a colloquium uh, that would write an economic history of the ancient Near East. A debt was really the imbalance in the various sectors of the economy. So you had to discuss how did the economy operate and what was the role of debt and why did uh, rulers throughout the Bronze Age, every Bronze Age ruler we know, what was their logic in canceling the debts when they'd take, take the throne or when there was a drought or a flood or uh, reasons to cancel the debts and uh, uh, why didn't the rest of Western civilization follow suit. But that's the point, isn't it? So the, the impetus really was looking at uh, the problems, the societal problems that we have today, specifically linked to debt. Yes. And what you want, have gone out and done, and done brilliantly, is give the historical context to this. Because in a sense, what we're saying as a modern civilization is that we're so advanced, we've got smartphones and all the rest of it, we don't actually need to learn any of the uh, lessons of history. There is an active hatred and opposition of uh, history before Greece and Rome. And especially on the left, this is the case. Uh, one of the worst offenders was Moses Hitt Finlay, said uh, the Near East has nothing to do with Western civilization. Well, the fact is almost all of the techniques of uh, economic enterprise, weights and measures, mythology, all of this comes from the Near East. And that is uh, expurgated from the history because the very thought of debt cancellation as preserving stability rather than causing uh, a disaster is anathema to the Chicago School, to the bankers, to, right. the, uh, to the economics department right. of the university. So, so the victors in some respects have rewritten the history because, and there's been an amnesia to say actually we don't need any of that stuff, we just well, need to... Not an amnesia, almost an a cutting out, right. in a, a brain surgery uh, to exclude... So a frontal lobotomy really and yes. we got rid of all that. Yes. And, and, and just um, define the Near East country-wise. Where, where are we talking about the We're region? We're talking about what is now Iraq 
Iraq, uh, which was uh, southern Iraq, was basically Sumer, going uh, north along the uh, Euphrates that turns up into Syria, and the colonies of up into Anatolia, which is now central Turkey. And then uh, further eastward, uh, you have uh, what is now Iran. Looking back over this history and reading the book, you can't ever um, divorce theology, obviously, from uh, this treatment that you've um, written. I don't know any clergyman clergywomen who've ever been through um, a theological school and ever had any kind of briefing or insight into the economics of, for instance, Jesus. Why is that? Economists don't talk about religion or society or anything about uh, how to trade in a market. And theologians act as if religion's all about religion and heaven and sex and debt is left out. Why is that? Because if uh, religious leaders are interested in social justice, as yeah. Jesus was, then it turns out you're going to have to talk a little bit about economics. Well, I think part of the reason is when they translated the Bible into English, German, uh, and the vernacular, they didn't know what many of the words uh, meant, and so they didn't understand that most of the Bible was redacted by the returnees from the Babylonian captivity people who came back from Babylon. Uh, and what they brought back from Babylon was this concept of a debt cancellation, anderarum, uh, a clean slate. And uh, the Hebrew word was deror. Uh, and in the Bible, you'll have uh, the words for the uh, clean slate for the Jubilee year of uh, Leviticus 25. Uh, they didn't realize that when the word gospel was uh, said, the good news, the good news was there's going to be a debt cancellation. They didn't realize that the Ten Commandments were very largely about debt, that one shall not covet the neighbor's wife. That means you don't make a loan to the guy so that he has to pledge his wife as a debt slave to her so that you can have your way with her. But, and, but ordinarily that gets just translated as adultery. Yes, adultery, but they didn't get that the vehicle for all of this was debt, that uh, thou shall not take the Lord's name in vain, I mean if you're a creditor you can't swear that uh, so-and-so owes you the money, uh, and he didn't, that all of this had to do with the great destabilizing factor in society in the first millennium BC, which was uh, debts beyond the ability to be paid, leading to bondage of the debtor and ultimately to forfeiture of uh, the land to wealthy people who were beginning to group the lands uh, all together. And as Isaiah said, plot to plot and house to house until there are no more people left in the land and nobody to fight against the Assyri Neo Assyrian Empire that did cancel the debts. The Neo Assyrian Empire held itself together by canceling. Uh, the debts regularly. And the, after them, uh, the Persians and the Babylonian Empire, we have their debt cancellations, and Herodotus talked about it. But these are all looked at as somehow anomalies. Right. There's, uh, and you have had a work by some professor at Yale University that tried to write a history of money, and I discussed that. And uh, he talked about the market crash of uh, something like 1782 BC. He said there had to be a market crash because the debts were all canceled. I guess. Uh, the uh, ruler must have run into debt and he couldn't pay, so he canceled the debts, not realizing that the palace was the creditor, right. not the debtor. And this was done by Hammurabi and by everybody repeatedly in order to maintain stability. So you have the economics profession denying in principle that debt can be a destabilizing factor. They assume that all debts can be paid and that has never been the case at any point in history. So um, if you would have members of the Chicago School or the mainstream economists today get in a time machine, go back to Greece or Rome 
or Judea or uh, Sumer or Babylonia and say, we, we have some advice for you. Here's how to organize society. That society would have polarized very quickly. The population would have fallen into debt for the creditors. The land would be monopolized. Uh, the kings would be overthrown by a democracy, meaning uh, ruled by the rich people, uh, turning into an oligarchy, as Aristotle and Plato and uh, Socrates explained. And uh, you'd have instability, and the land would very quickly either be uh, conquered by other countries, or the, uh, the people would just defect to whoever was going to overthrow their rotten mafiosi running the country. In the book, Forgive Them uh, Their Debts, uh, the idea really in modern theological thinking is forgive them their sins. How come you've replaced the word debts with sins? In every language, the Indo-European language, Schuld in German, but also in Hebrew and the uh, Babylonian language, uh, the word for sin and debt uh, is the same. And from anthropology, there is uh, a very clear explanation of this. If you injure somebody, you would have to pay reparations or else you would have feud justice. So the result for creating an offense, a sin, is to pay the reparations debt. And you would have uh, the debt and the reparations were two sides of the same coin. But in English, it's been a more reductionist sort of translation. It's just that word debt, and of course that then has... Yes, because at that point, uh, the very thought of forgive them their debts is not something that the translator of the Bible uh, yeah. and their sponsors looked uh, very happily on. Right. And the very thought of Jesus coming and saying, I have come to cancel your debts, not to save you from sin, uh, you can imagine that this was not how to make the Bible a bestseller. So my name is Sarah Jane Clifton. I'm director of Jubilee Debt Campaign. We're um, a UK charity working to tackle poverty caused by unjust debt through research, education and campaigning. We came out of the um, UK campaigning in the um, 90s in response to the wave of debt crises which um, hit countries in Africa and Asia and Latin America. Although, you know, colonialism formally ended, it left in place an extremely un unequal a set of economic relations between countries. So a lot of the debt that countries um, in Africa, Asia and Latin America uh, were facing in the 80s and 90s was debt which had been lent very irresponsibly by um, European and, and US banks um, very often to corrupt dictatorships, had been spent on very repressive um, activities, often like, you know, on military operations to repress the population or the money had gone missing. Governments of the Global South trying to, you know, tackle urgent issues around poverty, um, trying to develop their economies have got no option but to borrow. So we're campaigning at the moment for quite a simple change which would just say that when a bank lends money to a government it has to declare it within 30 days of that happening. And that is just a really basic starting point which would allow civil society in borrowing countries to hold their governments to account. A significant amount of debt write-off is already written into the, the business models of the banks and the lenders. So when a country is in debt distress um, quite often its lenders will sell on its debt at a dramatically reduced rate and there are hedge funds called vulture funds whose business model is really geared towards purchasing up debt when it's really cheap and then using very expensive litigation to extract um, the full amount from the borrower. A big part of our work is um, campaigning to prevent debt crises in the first place um, but when debts have built up 
to the point that they're unsustainable or where they're undermining people's basic human rights, we think the only moral response is for those debts to be written off. You mentioned the translators of the Bible. You also mentioned the sponsors of the translators of the Bible. Are these the uh, old vested interests? The Templars in the 12th century developed uh, the whole concept of banking and uh, credit and foreclosure and uh, lending against uh, uh, the land and taking the land out of the community in order to pay the Templars and the Hospitallers, uh, the two uh, banking orders. So the, the whole uh, religion, uh, if you read Matthew Paris uh, and other 12th, 13th, 14th century writers, uh, it was all about the papacy treated England like the European Union treats Greece, demanding Peter's pence, demanding uh, all sorts of uh, debt service to the Italian bankers that uh, attached themselves uh, to the papacy, uh, like the IMF uh, and the European Central Bank will uh, do to Greece. And so, uh, obviously, the whole idea that payment debt should have priority instead of society having priority has become a distinguishing feature of Western civilization, and it's the exact opposite of the origins of civilization. And is what you're saying implicit in that is that modern civilization is actually uh, following Rome? Uh, and the, uh, how yes, Rome civilization, Western civilization made in uh, abrupt detour with Rome. Rome was never a democracy, and the, or the thought that it was a democracy. The votes were weighted according to uh, land-holding rights and how much land and money you had. Uh, so it was very much like today. The donor class uh, ran the votes, not the actual voters, who had very little uh, impact. Rome destroyed Greece militarily uh, first uh, at the end of the third century when uh, it was called in to help fight against uh, the two kings of uh, Sparta, Aegis and Cleomenes, who canceled the debts and were killed for it, as uh, followed by Navas, who also was destroyed. Uh, Rome uh, d began to destroy uh, northern Greece at that time and Sparta. It then destroyed Athens and uh, Corinth in the middle of the second century BC. And then during the Mithridatic Wars, uh, the Roman dictator to be Sulla looted uh, Athens, looted Asia Minor, paid his army to come back to Rome and uh, uh, make himself dictator. That was his official title and uh, rewrote the constitution and murdered thousands of his enemies, bought up their property at fire sale prices for himself and uh, for his uh, cronies like Crassus, who became uh, the richest man in Rome after Sulla. And uh, Rome became uh, bequeathed its legacy of creditor-oriented law to subsequent Western Europe. Aristotle b said that all democracies tend to evolve into oligarchy. Uh, the oligarchy makes itself hereditary as it's made itself today. The first thing the rich people do, the oligarchy, once they uh, get rid of the kings, get rid of the tyrants, get rid of uh, any central government that could tax or regulate them is uh, they untax themselves, they deregulate the economy, and they do what Margaret Thatcher and uh, Ronald Reagan did. They create an economy run for the rich people, and then they expurgate, they rewrite history to say there is no alternative as if it's always been that way. <laughs> and that's what modern history is. There is no alternative, and that's why the very thought that Sumer, Babylonia, Persia, the whole Near East survived keeping stability, keeping their population free from debt bondage, free from slavery, century after century, millennia after millennia, that is treated as anathema, as if it uh, couldn't happen. The Babylonian and Sumerian rulers had, in effect, an economic model that was much more sophisticated than any model 
that is used by any government today. They knew the economy grew in an S-curve. They also calculated how fast does debt grow. They all knew that debts grew faster than the ability to pay, and so when any new ruler would take the throne, they would cancel the debts, claim a clean slate, liberate the bond servants, and uh, return lands that had been forfeited by debtors to their creditors to restore a independent, self-supporting peasantry that could serve in the army and provide the corvée labor duties which built up all of the public uh, infrastructure. What would be the modern day equivalent of that? How would that look? Would you just go to the student loan market or the student debt market and forgive all those debts? Well, would you go to the mortgage market and say actually you know you can uh, own your house free and clear? What would you do if you were in that position? Well the kind of debts that were forgiven were only the personal debts, not the business debts. You would forgive the student debt and you'd forgive the credit card debt and the personal debt. What about the you mortgage would, debt? Absolutely not. If you would cancel the mortgage debts of the large landowners today, people like Donald Trump and the large absentee owners would all of a sudden be the richest people in the world because uh, they bought all their property with very little money down, uh, all with borrowed money, and they would become like the landlord class that dominated Europe in the Dark Ages. So uh, you would uh, essentially, the debt cancel a clean slate would be to turn over all the property to its current users, to its current occupants. They would all have them free of debt, but the rental value of property would all be taxed appropriately, as it was essentially in antiquity. So we've, what we've learned is that the Romans uh, were basically neoliberal. Um, Babylonia had a land value tax. And the key of neoliberalism is you have to kill everybody who's not a neoliberal, who doesn't share your belief. That was Roman neoliberalism. There was mass murder. But is that not today American foreign policy? Yes. That's why you have the, uh, that's the history of American support of Latin America, uh, the putting in the dictators. That was Hillary Clinton's policy in Honduras that's leading to the mass ex exodus of Honduras. America has supported dictators uh, as long as there are dictators. Do you find it ironic that the usual American foreign policy response has failed in Syria, specifically that bit of the world when we're talking in these terms? Not ironic, it's inevitable. I mean, uh, essentially, America want, wanted to control uh, the oil resources sources of the Near East, thinking that since the 19th century, GDP uh, per capita and energy use per capita are parallel. And they think if we can control energy, then we can uh, put sanctions on any country that doesn't let us buy into their commanding heights, that doesn't let us buy and privatize their infrastructure. Any country that doesn't follow the doctrine of Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and uh, the Chicago boys, we'll just starve them out. Uh, we won't give them food, they won't give them the energy. And so uh, the Americans' uh, policy since the 80s has been to use ISIS as their foreign legion, uh, to use the Sunni crazies uh, to smash every country and saying, look, we will do to you what we did to Libya, uh, what we did to Iraq, and what we're doing to Syria if you don't follow our orders. With the thesis that you provided and the historical context that you've written about, how do you begin to use that to influence American foreign policy and influence the economics tradition to start saying, look, we can't just keep going around the world smashing it up because ultimately that's not in anybody's interest. It is in the interest of the ruling class. Yeah, but it's it not. It absolutely uh, is. Okay. And if it's in the interest of the government. You have to tell people there are two interests. There are the interests of the creditor class 
that ends up doing to uh, the Western world what Rome did to antiquity, destroying it and looting it. And also, because many people consider themselves to be Christians, you say, by the way, here's what uh, we now can translate the Bible, and not only do we know what uh, Jesus said from Luke, that he, his message was to cancel the debts, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were the uh, library of the Temple of Jerusalem that they left for safekeeping. We know from the Dead Sea Scrolls how it's all about the uh, Melchizedek uh, followers were all about preserving this uh, Leviticus 25, uh, the Jubilee year. You say this was uh, supposed to be the foundation document of uh, what you call uh, Western uh, Judaism and Christianity, and all of a sudden you've made a travesty. Was Jesus an economic reformer? Of course, that's what his message was. And you, you get it in his uh, parables uh, again and again. When he went back to his hometown, to the uh, temple, to uh, the synagogue, to uh, give a sermon, he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah uh, uh, that said, I've come to proclaim uh, the year of the Lord. And Jesus said, that's what I'm, that is my mission here. And the people got so upset, they uh, drove him out of town. They didn't like him. And uh, the Pharisees said, we got to get rid of this guy. And Luke then said, the Pharisees, loved money. You know, they didn't like him. And their rabbinical school leader, uh, Hillel, had developed uh, something called the prose bull that said, I waive all of my rights under uh, the Jubilee year when I sign this contract. But In other words, he fought. Uh, Hillel and the rabbinical school rejected the entirety of the Jewish Bible. They were the atheists of their time. So Judaism, since Hillel, has been essentially pro-creditor. Uh, there's been that strain in it. Maimonides and other people tried to restore the Jubilee year, but that has uh, been sort of subordinated to the history. And uh, uh, obviously, the Christians are no more eager, even less eager, to say this was the message of uh, Jesus to proclaim the Jubilee year and cancel the debts, not what the oligarchy wants to do. Was Jesus a land reformer? He didn't speak at that point about land reform, but when he said he'd come to proclaim the Jubilee, what that meant was uh, returning the land to this uh, debtor who had forfeited it to the foreclosing creditor. Uh, that was part of the Jubilee year, as it was in Babylonia. The wording for the Jubilee year in Leviticus 25 was word for word the same as Hammurabi and other Babylonian rulers had used in their clean slate proclamation. So uh, what you did was Judaism simply took over uh, the Babylonian background. And so what I've tried to do in the book is show that there was a continuity from the Near East through Judaism to early Christianity. Do you think Jesus was a socialist? That's what uh, Karl Kautsky wrote. Yes. Uh, in Today he would be called a socialist because he uh, advocated a mixed economy. There had to be a check to the uh, power of the independent oligarchy. And without checks and balances, you're going to have a one-sided oligarchic uh, takeover. Jesus was saying exactly what uh, Socrates had said in the Republic. Just uh, very similar reasoning. Although they, he didn't read Socrates, but it was spontaneous. I mean, it was sort of obvious from the logic of the time. Michael Hudson, thank you very much for your time. Good to be here.